So Hebrews chapter 12, and um, for the sake of time, we're going to start in verse 18. I say for the sake of time, giving you the understanding that uh, it's a really good thing to go home and get your Bible out and read what went above and beneath what we read in church. We don't have the time to read every single thing completely in all of its wonderful context, but that doesn't mean you don't have the time. And as a believer, it's a noble thing to go out and search the Word. It's a noble thing to dig. It's a noble thing to confirm what you heard every service. Go home and dig in. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which, was, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. Those of you who are studied in this would understand that he's referring specifically right at this point to Mount Sinai, and a specific point in time. When the law was given, when God visited Moses on the mountain, it was probably one of the most intense uh, manifestations of His presence that uh, you know, I, think, I think the nation of Israel had seen. Uh, we know that His presence was in the tent of meeting. We know that His presence was in the tabernacle. And yet there was something about this meeting with Moses that was, that was another level. Uh, Moses came back with his face glowing. I mean, there were some serious, some serious things going on. Um, and, and in this time when, when God came and his presence was manifest, there were a couple meetings on Sinai that are mentioned. And in this particular one, his presence was so strong that there was great terror in the nation of Israel because they knew uh, that contact with that presence wouldn't be good for them. The reason for that was is that they were still in the Old Covenant. And any sin could not stand in the presence of God. That there was such a manifestation of His holiness that there was no room for any fleshly thing. At this point, they were given strict direction that not any person or even a beast would touch this mountain. Because if they did, they'd be consumed that that's how strong the presence of God was on this mountain. That if anything that had a touch of sin on it touched even the mountain that God was on, they would die. So there was great fear because uh, what we're seeing here is he's describing the things that they saw. He said that there's a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire. The presence of God manifested at this point like a fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. So you had fire, you had whirlwind, all of these things. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because just hearing the reality of God's voice, as clearly as they heard it, was terrifying to them. Because they were not equipped for this. They begged that no further word be spoken. Can you imagine if God spoke to you and you said, please don't say anything else. This is so intense, I can't take any more. This is what they were experiencing on this mountain, near this mountain. And the reason once again was because they were living in a covenant 
where they still did not have complete atonement for their sins. There were bloods, there's blood of animals that on the day of atonement would cover the sin, but nothing had taken it away. And even the animals that came in contact with them were tainted with this sin. Do you know when you study the sacrifice on the day of atonement, there were even the even the, the animal being sacrificed had to be cleansed. Even the elements had to be cleansed by the sprinkling of blood because it came in contact with sinful people. By petting your dog, <laughs> you transferred some guilt onto him. Can you imagine that? That there was such a reality of the presence of God that even the tiniest bit of sin could not be tolerated. Now remember, he's saying, you have not come to this mountain. This is what they experienced this is not the experience of the church in the New Covenant. And we're going to see why in a moment. He said, They begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. That's not a happy encounter with this is why God said to Moses, Moses, you cannot see my face. I'm going to hide you behind the cleft of the rock, and what you'll see is the trail of my presence. You'll see, you'll see the remnant of me passing by. You know where the scripture talks about, I see the Lord seated on the throne, and, and the train of his robe fills the temple. That's, that's what comes behind him. The, the train, the, 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 the residue that's left over when he walks by. That's what Moses was allowed to see. God hid him behind the rock until he had already passed by. He said, Moses, no man can see my face and live. Even you. So Moses says, I am full of fear and trembling. And it says this, but. Because he says, you've not come to this mountain. You've not come to Mount Sinai where you have to tremble in, 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 in a fear that keeps you away from God. You see, we're going to talk about that tonight. The, the, the scripture, Old and New Testament, is full of the fear of God and the fear of Christ being a good thing. The fear of Christ is never said in a bad way. In Romans 8, it says you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, right? So you might read that and go, well, I'm, I'm never going to be... Uh, so, so no fear, no, no fear whatsoever. And then if you go to Romans 11, then right then he says, but don't be conceited, but fear. He tell, tells the believers this. Don't be conceited, instead fear. Wait, you just told me, I haven't received the spirit that leads to fear. And now you told me to fear. And then two chapters later, Romans 13, he said, give taxes to whom taxes are due, custom whom taxes customs are due fear to whom fear is due and honor to whom honor is due so am I supposed to fear or am I not supposed to fear can we take this down just a touch am I supposed to fear or am I not supposed to fear well we understand that there's two different types of fear there is a fear of God that is not from God there is a fear of God that drives you away from God there is a fear of God that draws you to God. That's how we know whether it's from Him or from the other one. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow says is according to the will of God, but the sorrow according to the world works death. People get them mixed up. They might think, well, this sorrow, I'm supposed to feel bad about this. I'm supposed to feel rotten about this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7 that the sorrow according to the will of God is for one purpose and one purpose only, to bring you to a place of repentance. And then it says, which leads to salvation without regret. So there's a sorrow according to the will of God that makes you say, stop doing that, it's killing you. You stop it and it says, never regret that. Never think about it again, it's wiped away, it's clean. But the sorrow according to the world is not specific it doesn't point out one thing. It says, all of you is bad. And here are the reasons why. It brings up your past. It, it burdens you down with guilt and shame. And, and makes you feel like you cannot come into the presence of God. That sorrow works death in your life. One of them brings you to God. Because that's, I mean, repentance takes place in His presence. I mean, this is where, this is where you come and you say, I'm turning. I'm, I'm, you know, and He brings that... He brings that pure uh, knowledge of Him and there's not regret there. There's not guilt. There's not shame. You realize that in Christ you've been made righteous. There's no, there's no blood guilt. There's no stain on you. But the sorrow of the world works death in your life because you, work, you live for the rest of your life condemned and ashamed. So one might think that they're the same, but they're not. The same thing is with fear. This, the enemy would love to have you develop a type of fear of God where you constantly feel so unworthy that you feel that if you were to stand in His presence, you would be consumed so you never venture into His presence. I don't want to go into the presence of God because I don't know what would happen if I did. That is not a good fear of God. We encounter this all the time. I've encountered this several times. People say, I, 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 I'm, it's, it's strange, but they say, I'm afraid to pray. Because of what I've done. Like if God were to walk in the room and you were to approach Him, that you'd be wiped out. Well, that is what they experienced on Mount Sinai, but that is not the mountain we've experienced. That's not the mountain we've come to. So there is a fear of God that comes from God. And the Bible says that that fear is the beginning of all wisdom. That fear is the beginning of all good things. That the Bible says in Ephesians to subject yourselves to one another. Submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Praise God. book of Isaiah prophesies about Jesus says that there will be a day where my servant, I will send my servant, and here is the spirit I will put upon him. The spirit of wisdom and knowledge and counsel. But one of the things it says, it's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So Jesus had the fear of the Lord. Now did Jesus sin? Well, this should be an easy question. Did Jesus ever sin? No. So that fear was not born out of, as, as First John says, this was not a fear out of punishment. Remember the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear for fear involves punishment. But Jesus was not afraid of being punished. This fear was not a fear that kept him away from God. This was a fear that caused him to worship God. Even though he was, a, he was God come in the flesh, he honored the Father. And that spirit that he received was a spirit of the fear of the Lord. 
So we've come to, a mount, to Mount Zion. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God. Now think about it. They were afraid to touch a mountain that God touched. God did not live on Mount Sinai. That was not His home. They were afraid to even touch that mountain. And they were supposed to be afraid because God Himself told them, you touch this mountain, you die. Even your animal touches this mountain, he dies. But we've not even come to a mountain on earth that God touched. We've come to His city, His hometown. We've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels. If you look in the column of your Bible or in a nice word study, you'll find out that this could also be translated angels in festive gathering or festive dress. So these angels are there for a party. These aren't, these aren't angels that are going to smack you across the head as soon as you get into the city. These aren't angels that are going to bend you over to the knee and give you a spanking. These are, good, these are angels that are happy. They're rejoicing. There's a, I mean, this sounds like a way better experience for us, doesn't it? It says, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that word firstborn is actually plural in the Greek, which means that we are all firstborn. Because of Jesus the firstborn, we've inherited the rights of the firstborn. He said, In the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So these are Old Testament saints whose faith was credited to them as righteousness. And because of that, through Jesus' sacrifice, remember the Bible says that Jesus preached. He went down and He preached. Well, who did He preach to? He preached to these guys who were in the bosom of Abraham, who were protected because of their faith had been preserved from, from the punishment of hell, but still could not stand in the presence of God because they weren't perfect. And only perfection stands in the presence of God. So even Abraham, Moses, and Adam, and Gideon, all of your, your heroes, wherever your heroes might be, in the Old Covenant, David, none of them could go into the presence of God. The best they could have was paradise in the bosom of Abraham. So Jesus... When he dies, goes down, takes the keys, takes cap leads captivity captive, totally beats up and whoops up on the forces of darkness, he brings perfection to these righteous saints. They go now, they are made perfect, and guess what? They're made just as perfect as you. Not more perfect, not less, but just as perfect. Because it's the same blood of Jesus that perfected us all. So these, these guys are up there. This sounds like a party, right? All of our heroes are there. The angels are ready to party. God is there. And it says this, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, praise God, which speaks better, than the blood of Abel because the blood of Abel cried out justice, justice, justice but the blood of Jesus cries out mercy and not guilty because once it's been shed for you you are judged not guilty we've got two mountains they share some similarities both mountains have the intense manifest presence of God that hasn't changed, right? 
Has God changed? No. So technically, the mountains both have the presence of God. They're both full of His presence. They both should be very dangerous to us. If God hasn't changed, we must have changed. Now, you know, we don't seem like better breed than the early Israelites. We're not wearing better clothes. Well, what's different? Of course, it says right here, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the blood sprinkled, which cries out better things than Abel. Those are the different things. Because of Jesus and because of his blood, we can stand in the mountain of God, we can celebrate in the mountain of God, we can rejoice in the mountain of God, and not be afraid. Not be worried that we're going to drop dead. Everything has changed because of Jesus. We see that. But now, there's obviously rejoicing, right? There seems to be a party atmosphere. But listen to this. See to it, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking, who is speaking God. So we've, we've just talked about the mountain, Mount Sinai, where His voice was so terrible to them that they said, please don't speak another word. But he didn't stop talking. He is still speaking. And he says, now his voice does not carry a threat to us. There's delight in it. But, but he says, don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him will warn them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So what he's talking about is a moment in history, which we all look forward to, when God shakes loose every created thing, they're all consumed, and the only thing that's left are the eternal unseen things. What does that mean in layman's terms? The earth is going to go away. The grass is going away. The trees are going away. And all that's left is the eternal unseen things. Now listen, here's what it says. So that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, which means your inheritance is eternal, your place in the kingdom is eternal, and when everything else goes away, we will be part of a kingdom that has remained. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So, wait a second. He didn't stop being a fire. He didn't stop speaking with a powerful voice. He didn't stop filling the earth with His presence. He filling the mountain with His presence. He didn't stop sending the angels as bearers of His news, as bearers of His commandments. But here's the difference. We stand righteous through Jesus' blood, through Jesus' sacrifice, and yet we are, we're still in awe of His voice, of His presence. Now listen, it says, we offer a, sac a service with reverence. That word reverence, 
Uh, the King James translates as fear. It's not the same word fear that's translated in other places. It's not phobos. It's a different word. It's a word that, that could be used to say uh, caution. It's a word that could be used to, just to give something a great degree of respect. Like, I mean, <laughs> this word is used in literature to talk about like giving something some space. Giving it some room because it's so valuable. Because it's so powerful or valuable. You know, like... Uh, a little bit like you'd view a power grid. But you see, God, we understand that the book of Hebrews earlier, in a few chapters earlier, has told us to come boldly into His presence because of Jesus. To come confidently and find help when we need help. Not to be afraid of God. Not to stay away from Him. But to run into His presence. Not to give Him space, but to run to Him. What is this talking about? This is talking about even though we've been loved by a great love, even though we've been cleansed and can stand to His presence, we never, ever, ever view it as casual that we stand in the very presence of God, that we hear the voice of God that shakes the nations, that shakes the world. That should never be a normal, ordinary, common thing to us. We've come to a mountain that is saturated with the presence of God. How? Can you treat that like it's normal? What we see here is that when we came to the mountain, there's rejoicing, there's partying, but there's also great reverence and awe. And I want us as a, as a group of believers to find the balance where you can rejoice greatly in His presence. You can feel free, you can feel light, you can laugh, you can sing. And yet at the same time, you understand the gravity of the situation. This is not laughing and singing because we're in fantasy land. This is not laughing and singing because there's roller coasters. This is laughing and singing because we are so grateful and because He has set us free from so great, I mean, by so great a salvation, we've been saved. This is the most wonderful thing in the world. The Bible says in His presence there is fullness of joy full joy yet he says we offer an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire that's who he is a consuming fire that demands reverence and awe he doesn't demand it like you need to reverence and awe me he is such a consuming fire that you can't help but reverence and awe and be in awe in His presence. So, so what do we do in a church service? What do we do at home when we've come into the presence of God, when we pray? What do we do when we join hands with each other in the, in the, in the you know, grocery store and pray together? When we understand if two or three are gathered in His name, He's there. We're happy, aren't we? We sing, don't we? We laugh. We should laugh more than anybody else in the world. We know that God laughs. We laugh. And yet, it is the great temptation to create so many things surrounding that moment of coming into His presence that it becomes a ritual or it becomes a tradition or it becomes something that we treat familiar like it's normal. But He says, even though there's great joy, we are in the presence of God. 
And when we're in the presence of God, the proper response is reverence and awe. You can smile and have reverence and awe. You can laugh, but never in a light, this is normal kind of way. Oh, I desire so greatly that our church services, that our gatherings, that our prayer meetings, that our times in our homes when more than one believer is gathered together become such a reverent moment that we can laugh, we can sing, we can dance, but that you know you came into the presence of the living God. And that there's never a moment where it's just another thing that you do on Sunday but it is a moment where you can't, can do nothing but be changed. You can do nothing but at times fall on your face. The big thing here is His voice, right? Mount Sinai, His presence is there, but, but the, the thing that freaked Him out the most was the sound of His voice. Because that voice carried such power. The voice carried... See, when God speaks, it is not just merely a vibration, a, a, a vibration of sound waves. It's not a vibration of molecules hitting other molecules that cause you to discern a sound. When God speaks, everything He is is contained in His words. Like, His character is in His words. The Bible says He holds all things together by the word of His power. I mean, this is not just, just a sound thing. This is not just a recording. When God speaks, there's so much contained in it. There's life in it. There's light in it. See, when, we, when God said, let there be light, sometimes we, we picture His words going out. Let there be light, and light was. So we picture His words going out, fetching light, bringing it back. But this was before He had created the moon, the stars, any, the sun, any other source of light. When He said, let there be light, His words were light. They didn't have to go get light. They didn't have to make light. They were light. And so when His words come into our lives, it's not a light thing. And I'm not talking about this kind of light. I'm talking about like light versus heavy. It's not, it's not an easy, it's not just a, uh, just a flighty thing. When He comes to Mount Sinai, they, they, they're terrified by His Word. But at Mount Zion, we stand redeemed. We know we're not going to be consumed. We know that there is, there is no punishment for us because Jesus took the full cup of the wrath of God. We know that we are righteous through Jesus Christ so we don't tremble because we think we're going to get hit. We tremble because we're in the presence of the living God. And there is trembling in the new covenant. Fear and trembling are used in a good sense amongst apostles that told you that you're not a slave anymore amongst apostles that spoke by the Spirit of God that said you don't have to be afraid of God but they're the same ones that say ah but there's a fear and trembling that comes when you're in His presence when Paul says oh what great salvation we've been saved with when he says it, that, that this salvation is so big he says work it out with fear and trembling he says to the Corinthian church you know what's good about what you did? You received Titus with joy. And when he came to you, you received him with much fear and trembling. And that was a good thing. What does that mean? There was great honor for the gift of God. Great reverence for the power of God. 
through the spoken word. Jeremiah 6, we don't need to turn there, but in Jeremiah 6, he, he's correcting the Israelites for their treatment of his word. He says, My word has become a reproach to you, and you have no delight in it. So they're in trouble for not delighting in his word. What does delight look like? It's good, isn't it? Have you ever seen a sad person delighting? No, delight is a very happy thing. It's pleasure. It's, it's you know, desire. It's, it's good. Delighting is good. You cannot be Eeyore and delight at the same time. Delight is a wonderful thing. And he says, the, the problem with you is my words have become a reproach and you don't delight in those words anymore. So we, we're meant to delight in his words. Like when we hear them, we rejoice. We hear them, we delight. But then in Isaiah 66... Once again, don't turn there. I'll just quote it to you. Yep. Let me read it to you real quick. In Isaiah, he talks about the way he, he desires that they treat the word. And he says, he says this, For my hand made all these things, thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. This is the one I'm going to look at. This is the guy that I'm going to bless. This is the guy that I'm going to spend my time with to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one I'm looking for. So what's God looking for? He's looking for you to delight in His word and to tremble at that word. And until you can understand that those two things work together, you're not going to have an easy time knowing what to do in the presence of God. Because he desires us to delight in his presence, and yet there be a trembling and an awe in his presence. Why are we trembling? Are we shaking because we're afraid we're going to get snapped? No. Are we, are we trembling because, like, a, like an abused puppy who's going to get hit? No. You are trembling because you realize how awesome. And I don't mean awesome the way our culture says awesome. I mean full of awe how awesome this moment is that I am in the presence of the living God. For my God is a consuming fire. Now, if you struggle with, with what in the world, how am I supposed to know what to do? What's this supposed to look like? Let's make it real easy for you. Can I just make this as easy as possible so that we all know what God is saying? How do we, rest how do we treat His Word? Well, you think about it. His Word. That's the Word of God, right? So there's a way we ought to treat... In a moment, I'll tell you what I'm talking about, about making it easy, but I just need to set it up for a minute. So when we come into a church service, for instance, or when you open your Bible, you are hearing and looking into the what? The Word of God. According to John chapter 1, what did the Word become? And who was that guy? Jesus, okay? So when we hear His Word, it's like we're standing in the very presence of Jesus. Now, that kind of changes how you act in a church service. Kind of changes how you act when you open up your Bible. This is not chicken soup for the soul. I really, I mean, you know what? I believe 
that there are some great products out of there that get you a scripture a day, and that, that scripture can be life to you. But, but you know my hesitation? Is that you've got to be so, so, so aware that when you read that little scripture on the calendar, that that is the same word of God that brought life into the universe. It's the same word of God that brought life to Lazarus, that brought life to Jesus. You've got to understand that once it goes one verse on a calendar, it did not become equal with your far side calendar. This is the word of God. It's living, it's alive, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so sometimes I get a little nervous when we treat it so lightly. Now, that being said, there's nothing wrong with having a calendar with a verse a day, as long as you treat that verse with such reverence. There were times in the Old Covenant when the word of the Lord would be read that they all stood up and heard it. It was not a light thing. It was a reverent thing and it was a delightful thing. These are the two huge responses I want to see, I want to have towards the, the word of God. I want to have a delight when it hits my ears and I want to tremble when I hear it. These are the things that God's asking. Delight in my word and tremble when you hear it. In other words, know the gravity of it. Know the power of it. Now, the reason I say this is because most people in this world have been born again at least a year. Most of you, many years. So if you've been born again for a long time, you've heard a lot of sermons. You've read a lot of devotional books it's very easy to slip back into casual attitude towards the Word of God. Where you wait for somebody to bring something new that you haven't heard before. Where, where we wait for somebody, like, you know, I've heard that verse preached so many times that unless they bring something I never heard from the Greek or the Hebrew, I'm not really listening anymore. Well, you know, most of the time there's nothing new in the Greek and the Hebrew. It's the same words. And uh, we're just looking for something to entertain our brain. Sometimes there is. Even tonight, we talked about sometimes in the original language, stuff that doesn't come out quite right in the English. That's okay. But really, it doesn't matter if you've heard it a thousand times, a million times, or one time. It should still bring delight to your heart and bring you to a place where you're almost trembling because it's so big. And if it doesn't, don't despair. Don't get mad at yourself. But reset everything to where you treat it with honor. Well, Paul said to the, th the church in Thessalonica, he said, he said, I thank God that when I came to you, you did not treat my words as a word from man, but for what it really is, a word from God. And it is that word that's doing, performing its work in you. So they, they forced themselves not to hear Paul preaching, but to hear God speaking to them. Now remember I said I was going to make this easy for you. Here's, here's the easiest way to look at it. How would you react in the presence of Jesus? Physically standing in front of you, visiting you one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm not talking about Jesus like in the picture with the lamb. I'm talking about Jesus as he really is. You see, the way Jesus appeared when he first came to earth was the word become flesh. But he He'd already existed, hadn't he? He calls himself the Ancient of Days. 
The Bible says in Colossians that all things were created through Him. There's nothing which has come to being which was not created by Him and through Him. He was there before the beginning of the world. Right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. I mean, so we know that Jesus did not just come on the scene when He was born on this earth. He was already existent. Now, He wasn't existent in that same form. But He was with God. He was the Word. Right? So... When He came to earth, He talked with us, He walked with us, He took on our skin, He looked like us. People looked at Him and didn't freak out. In fact, some people said, we've known Him since He was a boy, and they treated Him as common. They didn't treat Him with honor. But now, what does He look like now? Well, I'm sure He's Jesus. He can appear any way He wants to appear. But, if we're going to let the Word be our guide, which we should, what does He look like now? If you were to go visit him right now, would he appear to you like he did uh, when he when he came to the earth? He absolutely could do that. And to many people, that's when they've seen Jesus. That's what they've seen. But how did John see Jesus? When John saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, he did not see he did not see that that picture of Jesus holding a lamb. He didn't he didn't see a a, a nice a hippie with a purple sash. We'll read it again. You've already read it. You've, you're familiar with it, but let's hear it again. It says in Revelation chapter 1, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. That means he looks kind of human. <laughs> Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. And girded across his chest with worth a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, here's what John did. Remember, this is John who says, he loved me. This is John who says, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. This is John who said, I've come to know and believe the love of God. What does he do in the presence of Jesus? He falls at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. Right? So, so John has two types of fear warring with him right now. The proper fear of God. And then I'm like freaked out because I've never seen you like this. <laughs> and Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. We'll stop there for a moment. Okay, so now you're meeting with Jesus. Picture it. Are you happy? Yeah, this is Jesus. You really like Jesus. You love Jesus. He's your favorite person in the world. You've lived your whole life saying, one day I'm going to be face to face with Jesus. Even if you saw a vision of Jesus, you're still looking forward to the day when you stand face to face with Him. You're happy. You probably want to hug Him. 
kiss him, all these things. But is this a Jesus is my homeboy moment? Probably not. This isn't let's go play video games with Jesus. This is still like a shaking moment. Because you're looking at him, eyes like fire, hair like wool, feet like bronze that just came out of the fire. Face like looking directly into the sun. This is not a casual moment like, oh, I ran into Jesus at taco time. This is big. Right? So can you understand? Those are a bunch of things that you'd be feeling. The only thing you wouldn't be feeling around Jesus is bored. Right? The last thing you'd feel is bored. You'd be happy. You'd be like in awe. You'd want to laugh. You'd want to cry. But you're not bored. You're not yawning at this moment. This is huge, right? Well, this is what we feel... When we, when we properly discern the Word of God, when we discern His voice, you should feel the same way. Happy, I delight in His Word. I tremble at His Word. I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I feel more alive than I've ever felt. And yet I'm in such awe of this. The last thing I am is bored. The last thing I am is in a routine or a rut. I am in the presence of God. How does this change how we get together on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night? And I'm not saying this like a hypothetical, let's just imagine how it could change someday. I'm talking about like now. Could we walk in the door with such a reference for God that you still... Now, some people in history have, have stressed the reverence for God, but they, they've totally forgotten the delight and the joy... And people come in like they're on Mount Sinai, like they're going to get zapped any moment. But you're not there. You're Mount Zion. There's angels partying. There's a good time. We come together. We sing. We dance. We laugh. But then sometimes we stress that so much that we get in that ditch and people just act like it's any other party when we're in the presence of God. And where Jesus had no honor, there were no mighty works. Where he has no honor, there's not a true manifestation of his presence. Where there is honor for him, you'll feel the greatest sense and effect of his presence. Because guys, I don't just want to sense his presence. I want to be changed by it. Goosebumps aren't going to do it. I need to be changed. I need to be quickened. And I need to be filled and equipped and, and strengthened. I'm not, just, I'm not just looking for a moment to cry. I'm not just looking for a moment to shiver. I'm looking to be transformed. And that's what He promises us. The Lord promises this to us. Sometimes sit down and read Psalm 112 about how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And you'll find that this is a man who fears the Lord, but there's great delight. There's great blessing. He sounds like the happiest man in the world. And he says, because he fears the Lord, he doesn't fear anything else. There's nothing he's afraid of. When people talk about bad, evil tidings, he's not scared because he trusts in the Lord. We need to, to reevaluate, reset, and revolutionize the way we treat and handle the Word of God.
the teaching of it, the receiving of it, the reading of it, the speaking it, prophesying everything. Because friends, when you know you have a loaded gun, you treat it different. You don't point it everywhere. You don't, you don't fire it off without aiming. The people that prophesy the most without even thinking about what they're saying. With, I, I'm not saying think about what they're saying because we know prophecy, true prophecy comes from the Spirit. It's not made up. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. But the people that just do it, do it, and you know, mix a little bit of their thing in here, mix a little thing and just, just kind of treat it lightly. There's not much power in that. But when you do know you have a loaded gun, you aim it where God tells you to aim it, and you don't fire it lightly, you know it's powerful. Now, I believe that the way I'm meant to preach is to preach. I'm not, I, that's my primary calling is not a prophet. I'm a pastor. And yet when we speak the word of God, the Bible says, let him who speaks, speak as the utterances of God, as if God is speaking. So in a sense, it's a form of prophecy. And it's got to be valued. It's not your favorite Bible verse. It's not what you read in the, in the devotional that you got in the mail today. It is what God said to say. Now, if you guys value it, you'll examine it carefully, as the Scripture says. You'll let your spirit bear witness that what this person is saying is true, and you'll hold fast to the word of life. And then, there's great de- there should be great delight when we hear it. I, David said, I delight in your commandments. I, I just, I, they're the joy of my heart. And yet at the same time, like, whoa, that's huge. That hits me. Even if you've heard it a million times, it hits me. And this came to, you know, the funniest thing was I was praying and getting ready to preach tonight. And I realized that I had a system of getting ready and, and slowly was creeping in a familiarity with the process. Oh, and I, I stopped where I was and I said, God, if I'm meant to preach the word of the Lord in the power it's supposed to be and you're wanting people to receive the way they're supposed to receive the word of the Lord, then I better prepare with reverence and awe. I better, I better pray with reverence and awe. So, it's one of these things where we walk in the church, I fully expect there to be a lot of joy. In His presence, there's fullness of joy. I expect singing. I expect dancing. And I expect such an awe and reverence for God that you cannot possibly ever be bored. You could not possibly ever, ever get in a routine. When we start to treat it like this, our gatherings are not just going to be social gatherings our gatherings are going to be the most powerful, full of His Spirit transforming events of our lives. Because, not because we're in this building, not because any one person is speaking, but because we've gathered in His name and He's there. Because we've, we've said we're, we're dedicating this time to the hearing and sharing of His Word. And because we're doing that, His Word is the same word that is going to shake the heavens and the earth. For our God is a consuming fire. So, 
I mean, catch yourself. Watch it. See how you react to the Word of God. Do you know what? Don't stay under guilt and condemnation if you feel that you have, have, have well, I've gotten, I've gotten accustomed to it. I've gotten used to it. Well, then get unused to it. Get back to the place where you know it well, and yet you still reverence it well. That's how we should know Jesus, right? We, we want to know Him more every day. But that's not getting in a rut. That's the more you know Him. I mean, genuinely, think about it. The more time you spend in the presence of the consuming fire, the more you're really going to be in awe of that consuming fire. I, I don't think there's anybody that's ever stood in the presence of God actually standing in His presence, looking Him in the eye, that's ever, ever even thought of being bored. Right? doesn't happen so if you think that the more time i'm in the presence of god the more used to it i'm going to become you don't know god you don't know what he's like because his eyes are like fire think about this what what why what does that mean his eyes are like fire well it sure may look like they're flames of fire but you ever noticed how fire just keeps your attention how you become transfixed by it you can't look away can you ever imagine Jesus' eyes look like that? Like you just... <laughs> Whoa. I, anybody that says they got used to the presence of God is, is, is in some sort of imitation world. They're not really there. Because when you're in the presence of God, the more you're there, the more in awe you are. Because God is so big and so huge and so complex that you'll never get used to Him if you're really around Him. So it's not a danger. Don't worry about it. Don't think, well, the more I'm in... No, no. Here's the thing. The Bible talks about those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. What is is a form? A form is the same shape, the same image of something, but not necessarily the same in, in its fullness. It doesn't have the same mass, the same weight. It may look the same, Think about it. If we've been in the presence of God long enough, we found out that in the presence of God, this is what happens to people. And this is what happens to humans. If, if, if you let it, if you slip back into the flesh, here's what will happen. You get in the presence of God, and you find out every time we get in the presence of God, it seems to be we're singing this song. So let's sing this song. And uh, if the presence of God doesn't seem to be there, we'll just sing the song for a while. Well, I've noticed in the presence of God that... Uh, there seems to be like this. Oh, I, I, maybe you've said in the presence of God, there's, there are people crying. So, so let's make them cry somehow. Let's, let's put emotional music on. Okay, let's, you know, I mean, there are so many ways that we can manufacture a form, an image, but there's no fullness in it. There's nothing in it. It's just a hollow shell of what it looked like when God was there. It's like the hermit crab after the hermit crab left. And, and that's what church can become if we let it. Not church, but church services. It can become like the hermit crab when the hermit crab's already moved out. And you're in the shell going, I love this hermit crab, but all you got is a shell. How do you avoid that? You got to come in with the honor and the reverence. Guys, this is going to affect us in a lot of ways. Now, I believe, I believe that. Now, listen. I got a baby on the way. I know that a baby is going to complicate things. 
There's going to be times where we're on the way to church, the baby messes up our plans. I understand that. I understand that there's times where vehicles break down. I understand that there's things like this. But, but listen to me. You truly honor and reverence the, the word of the Lord. You truly honor his presence, reverence this time of us coming together. You're probably not going to be late. Now, we've all been late, so don't, don't get on to yourself. We've all been there. But let's get to the place where we honor and reverence it. We get there early. We pray. We prepare ourselves. What are some other things? Well, we come in and how, how we interact with each other. You know, the Bible talks about such love that we feel for each other. It even tells us to greet each other with a holy kiss. Different culture, we may not feel comfortable with that, so we at least do a, a shake or a, or a hug. But when you come into the presence, you understand, when I'm together with Jared and we've gathered in His name, He's there with us, it changes the way that we talk together. It changes the movies we watch together. It changes what we want to do. We may still go snowboarding. We may still have a great time. We may throw snowballs at each other. But there's a difference in the way you present and the way you interact and the way you communicate when you know Jesus is in the room. And He's always in the room. Oh, praise God. So here's my prayer. Let me just sum it up with this. I pray that we would begin to react to our gatherings where we hear the Word, where the Word is taught, where we gather together and pray together, where we love on each other and encourage one another. We sing together. We dance together. In those times, I pray that we would react in the same way as we would if Jesus stood face to face with us, staring at us with eyes of fire that we would delight and tremble and they can go together. You're not trembling because you're afraid you're going to get zapped. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is no punishment for you that Jesus has not already borne. We are trembling at His greatness. We are trembling at the weight of His Word and the power in that Word. And I mean this in a very practical way. I mean, some of this may sound like high thoughts or theory. But it's not theory to me. This is very practical for us. I believe this is the way I'd like us to behave next Sunday. With great joy. With great delight. Or with fear and trembling. I want such an honor of the presence of God in this building and in our homes because he's there too and in our vehicles on the way here such a reverence for God that we would wait for the next word to be spoken as the deer pants for water like a starving man looks at the feast on the table that that's how we look at his word and we just wait for him to say one more thing and we may have heard it 15, 20, 1,000 times, but we wait for it. Oh Lord, we are humble and contrite in spirit and we tremble at your word. Speak to us, Lord, for we're listening. And when we get to that point, there will never be a boring moment again. You're never meant to be bored. If you're bored, something's broken. If you're used to this, something's broken. I like us to be at the edge of our seat all the time. At the edge of our seat, what is God going to say? What's He going to do? 
how do I respond? Have you ever have you ever been in a meeting with somebody who's really, really important? And and everything you say, every time they're talking to you, you're trying to respond properly. It's like you don't know how to be human anymore. It's like you've never been in a conversation. Your brain's having to tell you, go, oh, uh, uh, wow. That's, I mean, you're, you're monitoring your facial expressions. I don't know if you, this is just me, but when I'm talking to somebody really important, I'm so, I'm so conscious of how I'm responding to them and what I'm going to do with everything that they say. I'm not looking around. I'm not, I mean, I'm like, okay, what do I say now? What do I do now? And maybe, maybe I'm too self-conscious. But we know that God wants us to be Jesus conscious and not self-conscious, of course. But there should be an element where you say, when you're in his presence, you hear his word, you go, how do I respond? How does he want me to respond when he says this? Because I know his word's not going to hit the ground without doing something. So how do I respond to that word? How do I react to that word? How does this affect me right now? And what do I do in response to it? Because if Jesus showed up in your room and spoke to you with a message just for you, looked you in the eye, poked you in the chest, you wouldn't just go back to sleep and go, that was weird. Whatever he said would probably change you. Right? Let's let it change us. Let's delight in his word and tremble the sound of his voice. Amen.